Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we spotlight the story of Allah Abdi El Fattah, a high-profile political prisoner in Egypt. His book, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated, is a unique account from the front line of a decade of global upheaval. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode explores the courage of political prisoners like Allah Abdul El Fattah, who lose their freedom for speaking out against authoritarian regimes. much. Um, so before I introduce my panel here today, I'd like to introduce the person who really should be sitting here right now, uh, which is Allah Abdel Fattah. Allah Abdel Fattah is often described as the Middle East's most high-profile political prisoner, playing a leading role in the 2011 re revolution that toppled Egypt's long-term uh, autocrat Hosni Mubarak. Allah has spent most of the past decade behind bars. Last year, the British-Egyptian activist rose to prominence once again as he staged a hunger strike while the Egyptian government of Abdel Fattah el-Sisi hosted the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sadly, despite worldwide support for his cause, he remains in Torah prison. In 2021, a collection of his writings, You Have Not Been Defeated, was published to critical acclaim, including essays, tweets, and writings smuggled out of prison. It's a mosaic of work that gives a unique insight to Egypt's turbulent decade and Allah himself. With me today is Leila Swaif. Leila is an assistant professor of mathematics at Cairo University and a lifelong advocate of human rights and academic freedom. She was one of the founders of the March 9th Movement for the University Autonomy in Egypt, a group that was active in defending academic freedom and the independence of universities, which played a key role in paving the way for the 2011 revolution. She's Allah's mother and part of a family of renowned human rights activists. And Carmela Shamsi. Carmela was born and grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. She's the author of eight novels, including Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018. Carmela's work has been translated into over 30 languages. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and professor of creative writing at the University of Manchester. Her latest novel, Best of Friends, has been described as an epic story that explores the ties of childhood friendship, as well as a work that explores the way the political world intrudes into the personal, a subject that I think we'll be certainly discussing today. Leila, before we go anywhere, I'd like you to tell us a bit more about Allah as a person before prison. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I had the heads up that I would have to <laughs> answer a question like that. So I, I, I thought about it a lot. Parts of glimpses of Allah before prison you can see in the book. There is an article, uh, a full article, uh, portrait of the activist uh, out of prison. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, it, it talks about how, how Allah was, uh, when he was uh, a, a, a blogger and when he was advocating free software 
and when he was trying to uh, make uh, uh, IT uh, friendly to different languages, uh, Arabic and uh, African languages, and so on. All the causes that he espoused and that were all about sort of um, enabling people in different cultures uh, to express themselves and to uh, uh, and to be connected. <laughs> there is also uh, a passage. Uh, I'm going to ask Camilla to read it, which takes us back to Allah as a teenager. <laughs> it's a passage in in one of his best-known articles, uh, Graffiti for Two. Should I? We drink tea in the courtyard. We've passed the stage of discussing the use of our resilience, the chances of our release. After a month of disclosures and revisions, all that's left to us is memories. And while we tell stories of past imprisonments when the cells seemed more friendly and comrades more loyal, even though the revolution was then an impossible dream, I think back and find myself there in the past, in the metro, with a friend in my high school uniform, handing out an investigative report complete with photographs of the torture of an old cattle thief they set alight with kerosene in Fayoum police station. We change trains quickly before someone recovers from the shock of the image and arrests us. I didn't tell my father I had come into my inheritance that day. It didn't seem important. We were just trying to get rid of some of the anger, to get that terrible photograph out of the house. Hope had no part in this. That's as a teenager. Now I would indulge myself by telling you an anecdote about Allah as a child. In her, uh, in, in her foreword to the book, Naomi Klein remarks on Allah's precision of language. This anecdote concerns that. When he was like six or seven, Allah asked me, uh, Mommy, why did God create the world? And, well, <laughs> I started telling him how the world came in, I mean, how the uh, solar system and so on came into being, and how Earth came into being. And he said, no, mommy, that's not what I asked. I didn't ask how, I asked why. <laughs> so that's Allah at seven. <laughs> um, and how is he now, I want to know. Okay, now, well, conditions are, yeah, he, he, a year ago he was uh, transferred from Torah uh, High Security Prison to Wadin Natron. Wadin Natron is really much milder. It's, no, and it's still, okay, it's still imprisonment, and it's, um, I say, I call it, we've moved from uh, the repression of the Middle Ages to the repression of the 21st century. <laughs> you have 24, in Wadin Matron, you have, you don't have uh, 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 yeah, officers beating you up or stuff like that. 
are trying. They don't. They, they hardly beat على upline because we always make a, a big fuss. But anyway, uh, but you do have 24-hour camera surveillance. Uh, you do not have any direct contact with the guards. You talk to them through intercoms so that everything is recorded. <laughs> you only have direct contact with the prisoners who share your cell. Uh, and in Allah's case, that's only two prisoners. And the prisoners who share your exercise time, and in Allah's case, that's only eight prisoners. So all in all, he has uh, contact with 10 people. And other than that, he has no direct contact, uh, except on family visits. And again, on family visits, I, he, he, uh, it's behind the glass screen, and we have to talk through a phone. So everything is monitored and recorded. And I can't touch him. I mean, I haven't touched Ala since he was in court a year and a half ago. So that's... But still, compared to the nightmare that was uh, Torah, this is, uh, these are not conditions. Because he sleeps on a proper mattress. Uh, he is allowed books. He is allowed a television screen, although what, what he can see on it is, uh, of course, controlled. But he can watch sports events, and he can watch Egyptian drama. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he can watch cartoons. <laughs> he can't watch news. He can't read. He doesn't have a radio. He's not allowed the radio. He, he, Anything that gives him a chance to follow news is, not, is prohibited. Uh, so, you know, we have to give him news in letters and, and stuff like that. And, you know, he, he does these, uh, like, jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> when he hears something, uh, and when he sees myself and peop uh, people having a uh, minute silence for the dead in an, a sports event, then he asks, what was that? <laughs> and you know, so he, he, he gets a general idea of what's happening from what we tell him and from what he sees. And from literary magazines, because Taban, uh, he's off, uh, I mean, but on a long term, on a longer term basis than day to day news. He's okay. He's after, after he broke his eye, he, he was in very bad health. He almost died when he was on hunger strike. Uh, but now he, after he, after he broke his hunger strike and started eating again, he's physically okay. I see him. The visits are once a month. Before COVID, the visits used to be three times a month. Uh, with COVID restrictions, they became once a month. Before COVID, the visits used to be an hour. With COVID restrictions, they became 20 minutes. Every single COVID restriction in Egypt has been lifted except the restrictions on, on visits to prisons. And finally, but so I, I see him if I'm in Cairo or one of my daughters sees him if I'm not once a month uh, for 20 minutes behind the glass barrier. And we exchange letters once a week. I take letters and food and uh, washed clothes and so on once a week to his prison, and we exchange letters once a week. 
And let me tell you that this is just about the best conditions uh, for a political prisoner in Egypt. There are families who have not seen their sons, who have not visited their sons for seven, eight years. There are, and who are not allowed letters at all, who are not, nothing, nothing, nothing. There are, so, painful as Alaa's situation is, it's still just about the best situation for him. It, it got like, it became like that uh, with a lot of uh, yani, uh, pressure and uh, demonstrating and yani, just to get to the place where we could get regular letters, it took demonstrations and it took the arrest of Sana'a and Sana being also put in prison Sana for being it. your daughter. Sana being my youngest daughter, Alaa's younger sister. She, yani we were we were um, sitting in outside Torah prison because they were refusing to give us letters, uh, and uh, we were all beaten up. But Sana, but but later, uh, Sana when we went to the public prosecutor to make a complaint against being beaten up, Sana was kidnapped and then she was arrested and then she was tried for disseminating false news. <laughs> and uh, she was imprisoned for uh, a year and a half, for 18 months. So, but in the end we did get we did establish the right to get a letter a week. <laughs> but that's, that was the price to pay for that. Yeah. Ella um, and Sana, when she was in prison, were one of 60 to 70,000 political prisoners in Egypt. Yeah, that's the estimate. We don't know yeah. the numbers. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, the number, it's not just the numbers are published. I doubt that anybody in Egypt knows the numbers, even the public prosecutor, because there are prisoners in regular prisons, there are prisoners in police stations, there are people who are disappeared, <laughs> and there are prisoners in illegal prisons, uh, like uh, police camps or stuff like that, and uh, there are new prisons being built all the time. And yani, for example, there's this police camp where they used to keep political prisoners. And then when we made a great fuss about this being an illegal prison, they turned it into a prison. I mean, they, they, they put the sign <laughs> and called that, I don't know, the Giza Central Prison or whatever, instead of the uh, uh, police camp number uh, 10. <laughs> So you know you, so there's a whole, and it's very and, and some are on remand, some are uh, uh, have been sentenced, some are on trial. Uh, those on remand uh, are being uh, placed on demand for different cases. Uh, so. It's very difficult to get a proper figure. 60,000 is the best estimate we can make 
by the fact that every time the lawyers attend a hearing uh, to look into uh, remand arrests, uh, the number who turn up in one court in one, on one day is like 500. <laughs> mm. Shocking. <laughs> so I'd like to turn to, um, you have not yet been defeated, Alain's book. Um, uh, and how much did he, was he aware that this was being put together? I mean, I, I, I imagine he can't have had much input from prison. Yeah, uh, he was aware because we, we actually started this project when, in the six months when he was released, uh, but was on probation uh, from uh, March 19 to September 19. He was released, but he was on uh, probation. He had to spend every, uh, he had to spend uh, the hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the police station, not at home. So, um, that's when we, uh, yeah, we had started this project just before he was released. So he was aware that we were going on with it. Uh, but actually, we, he, 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 uh, he was aware, it, it, the project was a book in Arabic. And then, uh, well, the friends who were doing the, the English version, they sort of, went ahead much faster than the friends who were doing the Arabic version. <laughs> so, so it was the English version that came out first. We, 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 when it was near, uh, nearly done, we told him about it. And we, um, uh, I told him about the title. Uh, I, I had chosen the title. I had suggested the title. So. And somebody had suggested something else, so I asked him to choose, and he chose this title. Yeah, chose your one, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he was aware. Yeah. Which notably is, Daniel, you're making it sound more optimistic. Yeah. It's not you have not been defeated, it's you have not yet. I thought I added the yet. Yet to yeah. be defeated. Yeah. And it's you know, and sort of a warning note yeah. out there. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it's yeah. absolutely directed at the Western yeah. leader. Because from Allah's point of view, from our point of view, the Arab leader has been defeated. Yeah. 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 Carmela, you say that you know Allah primarily through the book. Only through the book. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. What struck you most when reading it? Um, he has the most extraordinary mind. And I mean, I, I just read it for the third time yesterday. Um, and each time I read it, there's I mean, there, there are many levels of feelings of anger you can have, but one of my feelings of anger is I want this person out in the world every day writing and speaking to me about what's happening because his analytical ability um, and the way, I mean, he, through the book, he's ranging from subject to subject. I mean, you see him as a student of history and he's looking at South Africa um, and the sort of decades-long struggle that it takes South Africa to get to its own post-apartheid elections. You see him as a student of history, and then you see him as someone who partakes in, but is also analyzing tech. And they're just these really incredibly smart interventions, which were written sort of eight, 10 years ago um, on social media. He's so smart on something like Uber. Um, and the way he write about Uber and what the problem is in that model is quite different to the way other people are talking about it. Um, he's 
um, I think it's, it's so wonderful, I mean, wonderful isn't the word, it's a relief to find someone who will talk head on about defeat. Um, you know, in the way that so often you hear people saying, no, no, we must be optimistic, we must have hope, and there's, there's something about saying, let us record this moment for what it is. Um, and at other moments, he'll say, but of course, a, a revolution is a very, very long process. I'm talking about the battle. In the battle, there is defeat. Um, but there are other points where he talks, and I think this is something that actually I've heard um, Julian Slover, whose parents were such important part of the anti-apartheid struggle, and I'd say, did they always think they could win? And she said, they always knew they had to be fighting. Um, and it's something you hear him say, but you, it's not that you're fighting because you think you're going to win. You fight because there is a fight that needs to be fought. And what else are you going to do? And I think that kind of voice and the clarity with which he's speaking of those things are so significant. But he also, I mean, as that title says, he has so much to say to people in different parts of the world. I mean, there's part of me that is a Pakistani that is reading him as what it is to be in a country where the military has a certain kind of power and you feel defeat. But there's another kind of part of me that is reading him as a Brit um, and that you have not yet been defeated, um, which is an extraordinary essay. And, and it is very much directed at the West, I think. And, and his first point, and when he says, when people say, what can I do? And his first point is defend your own democracy. Um, and he's very eloquent on that, on how where you sit is where you can best fight. Um, and that when the world's oldest democracies, when they start falling apart, that's a very bad precedent because then other countries around the world can say, well, look, even there, they're doing this thing. Um, and to be reading that in sort of, you know, in Britain, I mean, I've read this between 2020 and now in the fever, <laughs> and it just keeps feeling more and more true um, about a, a democracy under attack. I'm also, as a writer, he is such a beautiful... I want to read... Yeah, uh, there's, there's a bit... Also, in terms of form, I mean, the, he ranges through so many... It's like, at different moments, he thinks, okay, this moment requires a tweet. Uh, this moment requires a collaboration with a poet. This moment requires an anecdote. This moment requires an essay written as a bit of dialogue. Um, and there's this essay, which is... Um, it's called Five Metaphors on Healing, is that the title? Um, which, Five Metaphors on Healing, which was written in um, 2019, two days before he was arrested. It is just the most extraordinary piece of writing. Um, and there's, I'm going to just read the last bit. Um, if we are to be treated like animals with no agency, so be it. But we shall bypass cattle and livestock, ignore pets and domesticates. We shall look to the lizards, starfish and earthworms, those beings that can regenerate after an injury, no matter how grave. We shall accept that regenerated organs may not be identical to what was lost. They could appear to be mutilated, but look closer and you will see the beauty in monstrosity, for only the monstrous can hold both the history of dreams and hopes and the reality of defeat and pain together. The monstrous need not forget their old injuries in order to lose their fear of acquiring new ones. Mm. Unbelievable writing. Yeah. Okay. Um, the effects of 
governments targeting and imprisoning prisoners of conscience uh, can be devastating for families, and I think particularly in the Arab world, um, like in Egypt, relatives are often added to a terror list, you know, and that can mean they have travel bans, it means their property is confiscated and other restrictions, just for being associated, being a sort of, you know, you don't even need to be an immediate relative often. How have you and your family managed to survive the past decade? And, what, and also, like, what, what sort of help or solidarity have you had from families in similar situations, both in Egypt and elsewhere? I, oh, that's... Well, let's start with the solidarity bit. I have had yeah, more... A lot and a lot and a lot of solidarity. It's very difficult to to say how much. I have been very lucky uh, in the fact that my whole my whole extended family has been very very supportive. I know families who have had real problems with you know cousins or uncles or aunts or even parents. Uh, but we've been we've been very lucky with that. We we have a very very supportive uh, extended family. Uh, also, other families are supportive. they're afraid. Some some are afraid. Uh, some are. Uh, some start by being suspicious. How come they're so high profile? Uh, they, but eventually, all this is overcome. You know, when okay, when you keep meeting outside the same prison gates and standing in the the same horrible queues, we stand. You queue outside these prisons for hours, hours. And you you arrive like uh, at nine at nine in the morning if you are lucky like me and you're coming from somewhere not too far, and you've got a car. But there are people who, you know, arrive at 6 in the morning, or, uh, and, and they're traveling from, I don't know, uh, other parts of, of Egypt and so on. And then you're stuck there for hours and hours and hours. So eventually, a sort of community emerges. It has to emerge, because you're spending all this Time together, and you're, uh, you know, giving because also the, you, you, there are no proper channels for news. Uh, there are no proper channels for information. So uh, prisoners, families rely on each other, and uh, to, to 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 tell you that so and so has been transferred, or. Not exactly so and so and transferred, but there has been a big transfer in Torah prison. So check if your kids have been transferred, etc. So there's a lot, yeah, and, you, and it's actually quite touching because you know you you look at social media and all these quarrels between Islamists and secularists are still going on. <laughs> And you think, wow, they're still there. <laughs> when yesterday you were sitting, 
<laughs> with the mother of one of those Islamist kids. And we were both talking about our kids. And uh, do they allow you to uh, enter medicines? No, but they allow Allah to get medicines. And maybe he can get them there. <laughs> so that's a lot of solidarity. And then there's been Taban, just solidarity of people who care. Just the messages, the messages I get from all over the world. And, and the stuff that's really touching, which is you're walking down the street and this taxi, this, no, not a, this, مثلا, lorry driver does beep, beep, um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that's like, that kind of thing can keep you going for days. <laughs> or this uh, young conscript who's actually a guard at the jail. And then he says, uh, I've been following you on Facebook, bravo. <laughs> uh, uh, so, it, it, and since, uh, since COP, I've been getting people back telling me, yeah, and people on the streets just stopping me to tell me how great Sana is, that's my youngest daughter, who made quite a <laughs> And I suppose also that so that's that's how we've survived by this solidarity, and came in by the fact that yeah, again we're lucky because we're high profile, so it takes a very yeah, it takes a real decision to hurt us. Not every uh, stupid lieutenant and lieutenant can decide to hurt us. Somebody really high up has to take a decision. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it does make a difference, <laughs> and uh, because because also because my husband was a very prominent human law, my lawyer, uh, and most lawyers owe him uh, their introduction to to human rights work and to a lot of other work and so on. So I, I get like. Uh, free legal assistance <laughs> from tens of people, not, not, not just from one or two lawyers. Yani, 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 whatever, yani, once Sana was being transferred from one prison to another and they passed her by the prosecutor's office to sign something, and she, and three lawyers just any lawyer, we didn't know them personally, spied her and said, that's Safe's daughter, and they came with her. And then they phoned me to tell me that they'd seen Sana. So, you know, you, that's, Taban, a, a lot was, in, yani, yani, Safe invested a lot of his life mm -hmm. to get there, yani, but that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Kamala, it feels to me like freedoms are roll, being rolled back across the world. Um, and Allah is sort of particularly prominent in the 2011 uh, revolution. And elsewhere in the Arab world, we've seen uh, ferocious counter-revolutions. Um, you know, Tunisia is now gripped in, uh, in a dictatorship again after 10 years of democracy. Um, in Sudan, the counter-revolutionary forces are now at war with one another. How important is Allah's story to show the importance of democracy both abroad and here in the United Kingdom? I mean, I think his voice is 
is a very important voice everywhere. Um, one of the things that struck me this time, particularly reading it, was how often, you know, so when people talk about democracy, sometimes they just talk about in terms of how a government comes into power, whether there's a ballot box or not. Um, he talks a lot about the right of human beings to live with dignity. Um, and I think that's such a significant part of what proper democracy should be like. Um, and I think through the book, that's one of the things he will talk about again and again. He returns this question of, you know, we can't just fight against something. What are we fighting for? What is a common vision? What is, what is the goal? And, um, and I think that is a reminder, even in countries where you might think, well, you know, yeah, we've got problems, but we've got democracy. Um, and then in Britain, we might stop and say, how many people in this country do not live with dignity? Um, you know, in, in the session I was doing earlier, we brought up this fact that f the number is four million children um, don't have enough to eat. So there's no dignity. I mean, this, to me, that means this is not a properly functioning democracy. Um, and I think, I think the book is so useful at making you go back and look at what do you mean by this word? Um, it's not just about how the government... That is just a very tiny fact. I mean, it's a significant factor. I've lived under dictatorships. Um, but it's not enough. You don't become a functioning democracy because someone voted you into power. Um, it's what are the rights being given to people who live here? Um, and what are the rights of the most vulnerable, which over here it's children, refugees. I mean, you might, in many cases, and I don't say this lightly, you might as well be living in a dictatorship, the things you have to endure here as a refugee. Um, if you are um, wanting to protest, if we wanted to protest the fact that Allah, who's a British citizen, is still sitting in um, a government, I mean, in a prison in Cairo. We would have to think about the laws recently passed about protests and what is now okay and what the huge amount of discretion the police have in deciding who they can arrest um, and for what reason. You know, I mean, there's so much that's incredibly problematic. And I think this book really forces you to contend with it. it he doesn't want anyone to be comfortable. No one is going to read this book and feel comfortable um, because Ale will, will ask you to look at your own country and does it meet these quite basic requirements um, of what a democracy is. And I think that is invaluable, really, uh, this question of what is it you're fighting for? What is it that you want this world to look like? Not just against. You can't just keep fighting against. I think there's a lot of fighting against going on in the world right now. Yeah, I, I also think that when you read this book, you're sensitized to um, authoritarian discourse. Because even in democracies, authoritarian, just yesterday, the uh, French uh, minister, uh, interior minister, or whatever he's called, the minister responsible for the police, made a statement, the republic will win. My God, my God, the republic will win against angry teenagers? What is this? What is the republic? It's, it's, it's exactly the kind of statement 
that you get that you expect to get from an Egyptian interior minister. Mm. Okay, and this kind of thing is seeping all the time into the discourse of uh, politicians in democracies, of mainstream politicians mm. in democracies. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of fighting, last year, COP27. Your family did a fantastic job of, like, you know, of, of, of just grabbing people's attention and saying, look at Allah, and he was on hunger strike, and he was in serious, serious danger. And it seemed like people started taking notice, you know, in Downing Street and, um, you know, in other world capitals. What happened next? Um... What happened is that uh, the Egyptian regime dug its toes in, and all these uh, um, world leaders who had been pushing, once, once the uh, conference was over, they stopped pushing. And Allah almost died, so he broke his hunger strike. So, you know, the tension relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly, it, it wasn't completely useless because, you know, uh, a lot of stuff in jail. And since that point, um, the uh, jail administration has been trying uh, to do anything that Allah wants except release him uh, or allow him to visit not behind glass barriers. But you know, all the stuff like uh, they, they, they don't even anymore. Uh, when I let me tell you this because it can lighten the mood a bit. When I go to visit Ale or to take him stuff, they photograph every single item that I take him. Every boxer, every long jump. <laughs> <laughs> every uh, <laughs> rice pudding, whatever, yeah. <laughs> and they send it to national security to clear it. And I wait for hours until it's cleared, and then they take the stuff in. Not, I mean, I mean, I, it's normal to photograph the books or the letters, but you know, absolutely everything. <laughs> it takes time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the guy who does this is a senior officer. I don't know what he's thinking when he's doing this. <laughs> I really don't know what he's feeling or thinking when he's doing it. He's a senior officer. And he's very courteous. He says, please sit down, Dr. Lila. This is going to take a long time. <laughs> so since the, you know, the... The, since Allah started eating again, since his health broke down and so on, they almost don't object to anything. Yeah, they, they still photograph the stuff, they still do all this stupidity, but aside from the, the, the two things that they've always refused, the radio and the newspapers, they almost don't object to anything. Everything gets in. <laughs> they just don't want another you know, escalation like that. So it does, yani it does have an effect. It's just not at all the required effect, uh, not enough. And it's not even how, I mean, you'd think, yani, okay, the British government 
has not managed to make them release Salah. You'd think at least the British government would manage to make them uh, give him a consular visit. Uh, they, the British government has been asking for a consular visit now for a year and a half, and it has not been granted. And uh, the Egyptian government is claiming that that by Egyptian law, Allah is not really by national because he should have filled in some paperwork or stuff like that. This is a lie <laughs> because when Sana'a was in jail, that's Allah's sister, who is my national in the same way that Allah is my national because they are my children and I was born here when my mother was doing her PhD in 56. And at that time, you got nationality by birth. <laughs> so, Sana got a consular visit. So, but Ala is a, suddenly Ala is not by now. <laughs> and anyway, it should not be up to the Egyptian government to decide who is a British national. It should be up to the, to the to British law, actually, not even to the British government. So, the British government let them get away with this. But still, we gain. When I talk to other prisoners' mothers, yeah, when, when, I, when, when I look at all we did, I'm furious that we didn't get Allah released or we didn't get a consular visit. But when I talk to other prisoners' mothers, I feel that we came a very long way because, again, as I said, there are prisoners who have not, who have not been able to even write a letter to their mothers for the past seven or eight years. And they're not, they're not even, they weren't even activists like Ala. And for example, Anas al-Biltagi, he's been in prison, he's al-Biltagi's son. Biltagi is an important uh, Islamist. But his son was 19 and he was not active. And he's been in prison since 2013. He has not had visits. He's been in solitary since 2013. He has not had visits since 2013. We would not know what was happening to him except that he has been yani, going from time to time before judges just to be, because he, he's been on remand. He has not been sentenced since 2013. So, you know, he appears before a judge every 45 days. And so some lawyer gets yeah, to get some news of him every 40. That's the only way we get news of Anas. Thank you. So we now have 15 minutes. Can I ask a question? Yeah, please do. Well, <laughs> 15 I'm, minutes for questions. You, I imagine the question first. people in the audience have, which is how long is the sentence that he... Uh, Anas' sentence is five years mm -hmm. uh, for... Uh, Decimating false news or whatever it is that they sentenced them for, and we're having uh, the uh, the prosecutor's office insists on not counting uh, the uh, two years he passed in remand uh, because they are claiming that this was for another case which has not been brought to trial, so they 
are claiming that he should be released in uh, 27. And we are claiming that he shouldn't be in jail at all. But if he is in jail, he should be released next year. So that's. Uh, <laughs> um, all our answers are complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can never give a straight answer to anything. <laughs> Doesn't help that the charges are spurious. <laughs> um, yeah. Does anybody have any questions from the audience? Maybe we can have lights yeah. after the grid. Yeah, we can see them. Yeah. Uh, there's always good doing that. Any any kind of solidarity makes a lot of difference to all prisoners. Uh, and in Allah's case, because we we do give him updates on whatever kind. Of, even if, he, I mean, the cards are not delivered, nothing is delivered, but we tell him about it. <laughs> and there's even more good when people send, uh, you know, birthday cards, care of uh, uh, the British Foreign Minister. <laughs> that, that, that was a wonderful idea. <laughs> and actually, since Amnesty is, has a stand tomorrow uh, in front of the Foreign Office, uh, because uh, on the occasion of 10 years from the coup, and uh, we're going to be there out, uh, with, uh, with Amnesty UK outside the Foreign Office uh, at 12 tomorrow noon. Ahlan, Dr. Leila. My question is so I feel like in the past um, we used to think, so I've, I've lived abroad. Um, we used to think that um, like the British embassy or the British consulate held power to like help you out if you got um, in trouble with the country that you were living in or if you were put in prison. But do you think um, now, having gone through what you've gone through with your son, that the British government actually hold very little power in getting political prisoners out, out of prison? I don't know if it's, yeah, they certainly are not getting political prisoners out of prison. Now, is it because they hold very little power of, or because they are reluctant to use what power they have? <laughs> that is uh, a question yeah, which we keep asking the British government. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's because they have very little power, I think. They have more power than they're using. Could I ask uh, Camilla to reflect a little more on democracy in the UK? Um, it's not that we see um, turbulent moments or cliff edges, but we do see, I think, in a number of different ways, and you've touched on a couple, in which institutional structures are weakened and um, it, almost imperceptibly over time, we find ourselves in a slightly different place. How do you feel about that? And how, what is an appropriate response to that? Well, I don't even think it's imperceptibly over time. I think it's been quite rapid. I mean, there was, there's certainly that moment, sort of post 7, 7, 9, 11, when democracies around the world rolled back civil liberties so fast. Um, and I remember, and this is sort of to a point you made earlier, there was this line which I recognize as being so deeply the line of a military government or a dictatorship, which was there is a trade-off between civil liberties and security. 
There is not, but it is the line that is, when a government starts using that line, watch out. Um, so this has been going on for a long time, and I think that you know, something very deeply damaging happened here around all the anti-terror laws. Um, and again, they were primarily, let's be frank about this, they were primarily being used against British Muslims. You know, so other people were not that fussed about it, possibly. And that was a real problem, is that that was the moment when people should have been taken to the streets, because it wasn't a tiny thing, it wasn't imperceptible, it was vast. Um, and of course, some people did in groups like Amnesty, and Liberty was wonderful um, in all the work it did for an organization, the tininess of its size. I mean, Liberty really is something uh, for this country to be very grateful to. Um, and the last few years, I mean, the thing that to me is particularly terrifying is the way the government is happy to turn on the judiciary. Um, you know, I mean, that I think is, is, again, a real sign of this unwillingness to accept that you have these different branches of the government and there are checks and balances on each other, but instead, any time the, the judges say what you're doing is unlawful, to then for the government to attack them and to talk about activist lawyers when what you have are lawyers, you know, making a legal case. Um, so I don't think anything's been tiny and imperceptible. Um, but there is a kind, you know, and I think people sort of get upset, but there is, I think underneath the upset, there's also still a feeling, yeah, but, you know, either what can we do, which is, should be embarrassing when you read a book like this, because if this is what Allah and other people are doing in situations where they're going to end up quite likely in Thora prison or somewhere else, then what are we doing? Um, but I think there's also, there is at some fundamental level, I think, a belief that it won't really get that bad. You know, that democracy is still robust enough. Um, just you know, grit your teeth till the next election. And I, I don't think that's the correct response. It won't really get that bad. It's really a trap you should not fall into. It gets that bad. It gets that bad. <laughs> yeah, you, we used to say, okay, we started from a much worse place. But again, we used to say it won't really get that bad. We'd look at um, Saddam Hussein and we say in Egypt it won't really get that bad. And then it got ba that bad. And, and it always gets that bad if you do not stop it early enough. <laughs> Gentleman in the right. Thank you. Uh, I'm Egyptian, so talking to the... Sorry, it's overwhelming for me. And I take it, first of all, what, what we are fighting for is, as you said, it's, we used to say in the revolution, people used to say, it's bread, freedom, justice, and human dignity. And this is what Allah is defending. I want to clarify that he, for the second time he went to the prison, it was because he shared a, a post about the ill treatment and the torture that happened in prison, and he have witnessed it. And still, the regime accused him of false. So even for his struggle, he, it wasn't only for him. It was for people he have seen firsthand and how they are mistreated. 
the conditions there are horrible on so many levels. And again, democracy is so fragile. And it's the first thing for British people to do if they want to stop the crisis and cry on climate and on uh, immigration, as in that book, is to defend their democracy. And my question is to Dr. Laila, what a, I'm not a British citizen, but what a British citizen can do to stand for Allah and move the government here, the British government, to do something to release him. This is, his, his release is not only for him individually, although it's important enough, he, he suffered, he paid enough, but also as a hope for thousands of people in prison and millions of people in Egypt under this. I'm sorry to talk too much. Well, in the short term, you just do what you, which people do what they've been doing, but more of it, like, you know, letters to their <coughs> MPs and, uh, uh, and this is what you do specifically for Allah. But there's something wider than that that needs to be done. And, and it's not just British people, it's all the people in democracies. <laughs> Most governments in democracies are not really accountable for foreign policy. You have to make them accountable for foreign policy, not just for us, but for you. Because this is a vicious circle. I mean, these guys are telling you stuff like, uh, if we topple CC, uh, we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, millions of immigrants flooding Europe. Fine, great, thank you. CC is impoverishing millions of people. So you're going to have <laughs> millions of immigrants flooding Europe. And your governments know that. They know that it's not about that. They know that it's about stuff like, uh, you know, uh, buying a useless uh, submarine and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, making money for it. They, it that, that's the trouble. We have, these governments are breaking, are making deals together for the good of a, few, a very few people here and a very few people there, uh, buying weapons or uh, making energy deals or whatever. And we all need to stand against them. We all need. And a lot of this is happening in foreign policy, not in domestic policy. I mean, it's hidden in foreign policy. So you really need to make your governments account. You, uh, you, first, you need to sort of, and that's probably one of the good things about this book, that it does this a bit. But it can't really be done properly except by people actually living here and doing investigative journalism here and so on. You really need to uh, see the, the connections and uh, who's paying who what and who's making money out of what and so on 
and you need to make these governments accountable for everything that they do, whether it's foreign or domestic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, I'd just like to say that, Leila, you will be demonstrating outside the Foreign Office tomorrow in at, London. At, yeah. Um, and it's the occasion of the 10th anniversary of um, Sisi's military coup in Egypt. So um, if anybody would like to be in London, the Foreign Office tomorrow. And uh, what can we do a plug for the book? Yeah, definitely. It's an astonishing book. And, and really, I think, I'm, and this is another response to your question, it really helps clarify your way of thinking about the world we're living in, whether it's Britain, Egypt, tech, the interconnectedness of things. Um, so I'm not saying read it because, you know, here's someone suffering and we must read and feel. Read it because it's going to be good for you. <laughs> It'll, it's, and, and it is beautifully written. It's often very funny. Um, it's instructive. It is at times visionary. Um, and yeah, read it and buy a copy for someone else in your life you think would do with that. Thank you. Leila Carmela, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.